So, this morning, as we continue um, this, this preaching series, which is taking some of the alpha topics and, and um, looking at them so that we, we know what alpha is, we have an idea of, of what it is that we are um, going to be inviting people to later in the summer. Um, today, we are actually fast-forwarding a bit. You see, the penultimate session in the Alpha course is called What About the Church? And up to this point in the Alpha course, it's been quite a personal exploration of faith. It's been very much focused on on the individual and the individual's um, need for Jesus, the individual's relationship with the Father, and the individual's acceptance and receiving of the Holy Spirit. There has been, of course, talk of the church, but it's not been a focus of a session. And so as you get towards the end of the Alpha course, you suddenly come to this session, which is called, What About the Church? Now, for many people, this is a stumbling block. Because as soon as we start to talk about the church and consider um, being part of this thing that we call church, it suddenly feels like, hold on, look, I get get the Jesus bit. I can accept that. The, the loving Father is fantastic, the, the Holy Spirit that is with me and that fills me and that, that, that I, can, I can talk to and that acts around me, brilliant. I'm absolutely all over that, I love it, thank you, that, that's brilliant. But this thing that's going to turf me out of bed on a Sunday morning, this thing that's going to um, make me talk to people that I probably wouldn't normally talk to, this thing that's going to make me stand and sing songs that I don't particularly want to sing and maybe do something like speaking in public, which I really, really don't want to be doing. I am not keen. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus, yes. Church, not so much. And so it's important that there is teaching about the, the church. I'm just going to increase the height of this level so I can actually read my notes a bit more easily. Whoa, a bit much. Never mind, that's good, that's good. So, (laughs) that's a letdown. I think I've done it. (laughs) Oh, dear. The church. So, the church, of course, let's just just begin, um, as we've just had a wonderful demonstration. Things go wrong in churches. The church is not a place of perfection. Jesus, perfect, without sin, yes. Church, without fault, no. No, 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 no. No, if anybody's here today thinking I've come into a place that is going to be absolutely perfect, I'm going to love everything and so is everybody else because we walk in and somehow this, this almost magical sense of unity comes and we, we just accept and love and enjoy. No, that's not church. Because church is full of people. And people, no matter what our job, no matter what our background, no matter what our, our, our racial origins or the culture we've been brought up in or language we speak, people have faults. We have sin. And so we all bring sin into the church. And so the church is full of faults, of course. But that doesn't mean that the church is something that we give up on. We heard earlier, didn't we, um, um, when George came up and um, celebrated his, his 85th birthday, and he spoke about Enid. And George, I hope you don't mind me, um, wherever you've gone. Um, oh, there you are. Um, I, I hope you don't mind me um, using you as an example, but what a fantastic way to celebrate your birthday. You, you didn't make it about you. You made it about the, the lady with whom you've, you've spent the bulk of your life, the one who has given you so much joy. That, that is something to celebrate. You celebrated your marriage. And of course, in a marriage... You've got two people who are full of fault, full of sin. In a marriage, when you get to 80, can I ask how many years of marriage you've had? 56. 56. 
Do you know what? I'm, I'm sorry, I hate it when people put me on a spot like that, so I'm always a year or two out and I get a dig in the ribs, but well done. 56 years, I mean, that's, that's fantastic. And I know there's probably people here who have been married um, even longer than that, and there's some who have recently started out um, in, in marriage. But you see, when you start out in a marriage or when you've been in a marriage for a long, long time, you should not expect the other person to be without fault, to be perfect. We accept that... We accept that... We love the person for the bits that we love, and that makes us able to tolerate and ignore and deal with and accept the bits that we don't like. Now, the other thing to say about marriage, of course, is how do we... How do we what is marriage, really? Well, okay, I'm wearing a wedding ring. That's a sign that... I'm married. Anyone sees a ring on that finger, that's what they, they know it represents. Um, at home, I've got a certificate, which tells me the date, which is handy, and <laughs> it tells me where, and it tells me who witnessed it and who oversaw the, the ceremony, and um, it's got my name and Joe's name. It's, got, it's, it's the legally binding aspect of the marriage. Um, there was a service, we've got photos, we've got um, a, a video somewhere showing the service. I know all this stuff, that all happened, but that doesn't, that's not what my marriage is about. If someone asks me to talk about my marriage, I don't talk about that. If someone asks me to talk about my wedding, I'll talk about the day, because that's a different thing. But instead I'll talk about the sort of things that George talks about when he, when he described Enid. The sort of thing that, that hopefully um, most of you here, if you're, if you're in, a, in a marriage, in a relationship, the way that you would talk about your partner. Because at the heart of marriage is something more profound than wearing a ring or getting a certificate. It's not about legal status or a one event that happened the one day that that event happened. Instead, there's something more profound. It's about trust. It's about commitment. It's about relationship. And our role in the church should be exactly the same. When someone asks me about my church, I don't talk about the, day, the first time I walked into church. I don't talk about, um, I go to church because it's, 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 it's necessary. It's necessary in my relationship with Jesus. He says that I need to, so I go. It's not a legalistic thing. It's not something I do to tick a box. Instead, I talk about the, the, the people that I know there, the, the atmosphere on a Sunday morning. I talk about the love that has been, that has been um, expressed towards me. I talk about the kindness. I talk about the people um, who have been so faithful in praying and in loving one another. And I say, you should come along. You'd love it. It's great. And so many people have come along to, to this church and previous churches I've been in, and they've walked in and they've been surprised because all they've really heard about is negative things about the church, about corruption and abuse and all these awful things that go on. Because the church is not perfect. But they come in and their expectations have been driven so low by, by what they've heard in the world that actually they are really pleasantly surprised at what they find when they come into the church. In my office, I've got this, and there's a picture of it up there. And as you can see, it's a cross made up of four hands. There's one reaching up, the longest wrist is the one reaching down, and then you've got two reaching from side to side. And when I was first given this, it was, um, when I, it was on my day of my ordination. I got given it, and I opened it, and I looked at it, and I thought, oh, that's, that's nice. I'm not sure it's the sort of thing I'd have on my wall. But over time, I thought, no, it is, actually. It is, because whenever I look at this, it's a, it's a reminder of what the church is. It's a reminder that without the church, all I've got is one arm hanging on to another arm being reached down. All there is is me hanging on to God. With the church, there's two people reaching out to each other. There's hands grasping each other. Now, read into that what you will, whether it's a welcome, whether it's support, whether it's um, <laughs> trying to drag them along to church. I don't know. But hopefully it's not that. But 
what that shows to me is that if any one of these hands is removed from here, from this, then it ceases to be a cross. The cross is lost. The unity between believers, the reaching out between one another, is so important to the model of the cross that without it, it's incomplete. The Bible has over a hundred different analogies or metaphors or images of, um, of what the church is. And so we're not going to go through them all today. You'll be pleased to know we'll be here for a long time. But we're going to go through some of, the, some of the more popular ones. Just to remind ourselves, some of you will be very familiar with them. Some of you might be hearing it for the first time. But they're, they're all analogies that just help us to understand what the church is. Why it is that we, that we don't just, just read our Bibles and pray and um, do everything in our own homes and keep our faith to ourselves, why it is that we come together and that we share together um, as we do. The biblical word for the church is ecclesia, that's the church that's often used when talking about a gathering of believers, and that's a, it's a Greek word which means, it means gathering or assembly, and it describes the, the coming together. The global church is made up of over, well it's almost three billion Almost three billion people make up the global church. And believe it or not, we don't see it in this country, but the, globally the church is growing. There is growth in, in places where the Christian faith isn't allowed by law. That's where you often see, um, see people turning to faith. In this country, we, the church isn't growing. In fact, it's getting smaller. That's not a good thing for this country, but... Let's not, let's not have the, the um, uh, arrogance to think that we're world leaders and if, we're shrinking, if the church is shrinking here, then it's shrinking everywhere. That's not the case. That's not the case. We're seeing missionaries being sent to the UK now from countries who, um, who previously the UK used to send missionaries to because the rest of the world looks at us and thinks, crikey, they need to hear about God. That's a good thing. That is a good thing. Believe it or not, Jesus wasn't a white, blue-eyed, blonde, middle-class male. He didn't come from England. And so just because the church might not be growing over here, it doesn't mean that it's not flourishing in the world. So let's be encouraged by that. Because we are part of the people of God. The people of God. It's a, it's a wonderful title. John Wesley he said, the New Testament knows nothing of solitary religion. It knows nothing of solitary, solitary religion. When we, when we choose to follow Jesus, we cannot simply say, I don't need the church. Because Jesus says, to follow me, you need to be part of the church. The church is fundamental to following me. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So as Jesus talks about being the good shepherd, he's, he's describing the church. And of course, a shepherd is, uh, I can call myself a shepherd, if I haven't got any sheep, then I'm not, quite frankly. I might carry a big stick and wander around the hills. That just makes me a walker. <laughs> a, shepherd is, a shepherd has a flock of sheep. And even when those sheep are spread out across mountainsides, the shepherd's job is to, is to gather them in, is to, to make sure they're, they're eating the right they're in the right pastures, that they're on the right level, that they're protected, to, to bring them together when they need to be brought together, to, to wash them or fleece them when that needs to be done. All these things that need to be done. And apologies to any shepherds here, I haven't got a clue anything about shepherdry, but that's just kind of common sense, isn't it? We know that. And Jesus, Jesus is quite clear that he is the shepherd. He is the, 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 the head of the flock, the flock being the church. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I know each one of my lambs by name. He knows each and every one of us. 
And by coming together, by coming together to worship him in one place, we encourage each other, we recognize that, that we follow the same shepherd. In Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24, he encourages us to, to meet together, not to give up meeting together, but to look after each other, to share together. Elsewhere, we're encouraged to practice hospitality, to welcome each other into our homes, to share meals together, to celebrate together, to, to mourn together, to do all of these things together. Because the church is it's the people of God. And when people of God come together, they express together the love of God too. Because not only are we a people of God, but we're a family of God. Family is something even deeper. Families can feud. Families can have difficulties, and, and sometimes even there can be pretty nasty arguments. But ultimately, there is always that bond that holds families together. The fact that there are so many different denominations is, is often, sadly, when we trace back in history, because there's been falling out and disagreement and argument, and, and so one person goes off and does things their way, and actually like-minded people say, I prefer worshipping like that. You see, God uses our faults. God uses all of the, the, the sin, the iniquity, the mistakes that we make. Nothing is beyond God's use. We should celebrate the fact that there are different denominations, different ways of worshipping. We should celebrate that and not allow it to be divisive. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So we are sons and daughters. We are part of the family. We all have a common heavenly father who loves us, who cares for us, who protects us. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure, never asked the question, but I'm pretty sure that my mum and dad love me and my brother and my sister equally. God loves us equally. No matter what our background is, no matter what our past is, no matter what crimes we may have committed or offences we may have caused, no matter who we may have upset, God loves us. Because he's our father, he's our heavenly father. He doesn't say, well, I, I like that one more than that one because, you know, look what they've achieved and pff, ugh, if you knew what I knew. Yeah, God knows us intimately, warts and all. But he loves us with an unlimited love, an unlimited heart. This is Jesus stretching out his hand towards his disciples. He says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we are brothers and sisters of Christ. We have that intimacy. When we talk to Jesus... I don't know, it's different for everybody. Some may call him father, some may call him brother, some may call him friend, some may call him all manner of things, but however we talk to Jesus, there is an intimacy there. There is an intimacy, and we can take that for granted, but we shouldn't. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to call ourselves the family of God. I know there's so many people in the world who, who do that, have that idea that, well, I, I'm a Christian because so I'm in a Christian country. Or uh, I'm a Christian because I, I went to church as a child. Or uh, I'm a Christian just because out of all, that's the one. I know more Christians than non-Christians. Um, I know more Christians than Muslims or Hindus or Sikhs. People have different ways of identifying their faith. But, but actually the message of the Bible, and we have to be careful how we say this because we don't like to, to, to upset or deter people, but in the cold light of day, the brutal message of the Bible is that there is no such thing as a freelance Christian. 
There is no such thing as someone who says, I'm a Christian and I do not need the church. I do not need other Christians. I don't want other Christians. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we think is right. It's about what Scripture says. And Scripture says that, that we, we need the church, that we should gather together. The ecclesia is the assembly of God's people, the coming together of God's people. I've got friends who read the Bible, who pray, who've got fantastic faith, but they won't go to church. They won't go to church because they love the the side of faith that doesn't ask anything of them, the side of faith that doesn't require them to to give, the side of of faith that doesn't ask for for any time, the side of faith that doesn't disrupt their, their pattern of life. But actually, Jesus disrupts the pattern of life. Look at his disciples. They, when they were called to follow him, they, they, they gave up everything to follow him. Jesus disrupts the pattern of life. Now, not quite in such a drastic way in most cases. But our response to the, the gospel, the good news of the gospel, our response to the grace and the peace and the mercy and the love that we read about in, in, the, in the gospel... It shouldn't be, okay, I want that, but I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. I'll receive, but I'm not giving. I'm not giving my time. I'm not giving my my friendship. I'm not inviting people into my house. I'm not going to church. It should be, what can I do? This is amazing. I I love this. What can I do? Jesus says, well, you don't have to do anything, but it shouldn't be about having to do it because that's legalistic. It should be a desire to do something. I want to respond I know you're not charging me for this gift, but I want to pay something. I want to give something. I want to demonstrate my gratitude to Jesus. And Jesus says, do it through the church. It's through the church that I build my kingdom. We often say, don't we, that, that, um, that the church is not a building. And of course, we know that. We, we have buildings. We're very, very blessed. But the church is not a building. And yet, in a way, it is. Because Jesus said he is the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is, the, as I understand it, I think the first stone laid, the one that kind of sets the, um, uh, sets the angle. It's the most important stone in the building. From that, the other walls are, um, are, are set. Brick by brick, a building is built. You take one brick out of the wall and you suddenly have a howling gale and you know about it. You have one roof tile that's that's cracked and and falls apart. The next thunderstorm, you know about it. The church is a building, but not a physical building. It's a building made up brick by brick and you and I are the bricks. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We depend on him. He sets the line. He he gives the, the solidity but we're the bricks that God uses to build his church. The body of Christ is another analogy that we read about in Scripture. Paul writes in Corinthians about the body of Christ. He says, we are all members of the body of Christ. He says, we all have different roles to play. Just as the body is made up of different members, so we all have different parts to play in the church. And it was brilliant earlier when when Peter was praying and, and he said, let's just take some time to reflect on our own personal ministry, to commit it to God. I feel so fortunate to stand here in front of a, a church full of people who have so many gifts and talents, who have so many, um, so many God-given visions. And they might be all different bits and pieces, but together they're bits of a puzzle that make up the church. I celebrate that. I thank God for you. I truly do. Because without God, what else would have brought us all together? We've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds, with all sorts of different skill sets, all sorts of different interests. We wouldn't all be together. 
We wouldn't all be sharing this, this common value, this common God, if there wasn't a spiritual drive behind it. If God was simply a, an ancient relic, inactive, then we'd go to a museum and say how interesting it was. We wouldn't come to a church and say, what can we do in response to it? And that's what we do as a church, because we are the body of Christ, and we all have different roles. We all have different responsibilities and gifts and callings within the church. Because the church is not an accident. Paul writes in Ephesians, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens. We're no longer a group of people that have nothing in common. We're no longer a group of people that, that don't share anything, that don't know each other. We're not foreigners. We're not aliens. We know each other. We have each other. We are fellow citizens, says Paul, fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You see that building, all those different bits that, that have been put into place? Jesus himself is the cornerstone. But you can see all the other building blocks that have been put into place, and we can add our names to that. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the thing. When people walk in, they don't just experience a nice atmosphere and, oh, it's, it's really happy. They experience the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the Holy Spirit, might, you know, that, that, that might be what they recognize, that well, there's a lot of happy people. But Why? Well, there's a lot of really kind people who, who cared for me, showed interest in me, even though they don't know me from Adam. But why? It's because there's a spiritual atmosphere. The Holy Spirit dwells with his people. And that should be the same any church we walk into. And if that's not the case, and if it ever ceases to be the case here, it's not down to God. We don't go blaming God. That's when we take a long, hard look at ourselves. That's when we come back to the foundation upon which this building is built. We remind ourselves who we are, what we stand for, what we don't stand for, what we stand against. And from there, we carry out the re rebuilding exercise. In Scripture, we read a couple of times about Jerusalem being destroyed. But then we read about the rebuilding process how the original stones were taken, reshaped, put back in place, and the walls were rebuilt. Sometimes churches go through that process. But we should never turn to God and say, why have you done this? Instead, we need to be big enough to say, how have we done this? The church is also described in Scripture as a holy temple, a holy temple. I think I've said before, we, we're very good at talking about God Almighty, but we need to be... No, I haven't. I've said we're very good at talking about God Almighty, but we need to remember God Almighty. This is a place of worship. When we talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling in this building, in this place amongst God's people, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. The presence of God is something that we don't come into flippantly. We should prepare ourselves. How many of us take the time before we come into church to say, Lord, forgive me for the times this week where I've let you down, where I haven't honored you. Help me to worship you this morning without thinking about the football this afternoon or the oven coming on or the shopping that I need. Help me to focus on you, because this is God, the creator of heaven and earth, the author of our faith, the author of our lives, the one who knows every hair on our head, every detail about us. This is God, 
let's make no mistake, he deserves to be worshipped. This is the passage that I've just read from Ephesians. And so we come on to the bride of Christ. We've already heard one bridegroom talking with with great devotion and love about his bride this morning and it was a wonderful thing to hear. There's nothing worse than when you go to a dinner party or something and there's a couple who are at war. There's a couple who just moan about everything and one of them starts telling a story and the other cuts in correcting the detail and you can see the the tension rising and you think, oh no, there's going to be a domestic. It's like walking into the set of EastEnders. It's horrible, isn't it? When you see what should be a beautiful thing, a, a, a marriage, a couple who are devoted to each other, it's awful when you, when you see that crumbling and you think, what holds you together? Because very publicly, you're criticizing each other and being nasty and hurting each other. And sometimes you, you sort of you feel a sense of relief when you come away from a dinner party and think, Lord, I pray for their marriage. Now, sometimes, I'm a fairly calm, laid-back person most of the time, and thankfully, so is, um, so is my wife. And so, um, we have a fairly peaceful household. She tells us what to do, I do it. <laughs> That's how we work. But I know some, for some couples, for some couples, it's not like that. But work at the relationship. We work at our relationship because ultimately, the relationship is built on a foundation of love. And so even when relationships go through difficult times, we should remember that it's worth fighting for, be it a friendship, being it family, being it a marriage. Scripture says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul is saying, I'm not writing here about about actually man and wife. I'm talking about the church. This is how we should think about the church. It's, it's a relationship between us and God. It's a relationship that is, it's, it, Jesus loves the church. We are the church. If only one party in a relationship, in a marriage, loves the other party, that marriage is it's, it's going to fail, isn't it? Of course it is. It's not going to hold together. The love has to be reciprocated. Jesus loves the church so much that he died for the church. He died for you and I. He loves the church with his life. In a marriage, husband and wife hopefully love each other that much. In a church, we need to make sure that we love Jesus as much as he loves us. He loves us with his life. Are we prepared to give our lives in love for Jesus? Do we love him with the love that exists between the two parties in a marriage? The final analogy that I'm going to talk about this morning is divine. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples." So if you plant a vine and it grows up, 
when it starts sprouting a new limb and you cut that limb off, then quite clearly that limb doesn't have a future. It's dead. It's been cut off from the, the, the vine, the thing that is giving the goodness, the, the true stem, stalk, trunk, whatever you have on a vine. But you see, if we leave it, if we allow it to grow and to climb, then vines grow huge. They're massive. They put out more and more limbs all over the place and, and you get bunches of grape hanging down and you get so much fruit. But you have to be patient with a vine, allowing it to grow. You have to make sure that you, you water it, you care for it. You don't just expect it to do all the work itself. They take a lot of water. And you have to have the temperature right and other such things. There is a time to prune when you see limbs that aren't doing anything, you need to address that. But if you keep going, keep tendering, keep caring, then the fruit you get is fantastic. I know some friends of mine who've got a, got a vine, and, and you go around there in the summer, and it's just hanging down with massive, lovely, big purple bunches of grapes. It looks amazing. It looks fantastic. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Stay with me. Don't allow yourselves to be lopped off. Don't give up. Don't, don't stop accepting the goodness that I want to pump into you, that I want, I want to flow into you through my Holy Spirit. Allow yourselves to receive that. Let it become the, the essence of what flows through you spiritually because through that you will then bear fruit. You will then bear the fruit of of. of everything we read about in scripture, you'll become the non-anxious presence in a stressful situation. You'll become the, the one people come to for wise counsel. You'll become the one who, who, who shows love and care. You'll be the one who displays the mercy, who brings the joy, who introduces peace into a situation of conflict. You can do all that. You can be all that and more. But do it through Jesus. Allow the love of Jesus to be the thing that, that drives us, that grows that fruit through us. Because if we don't do that, then of course we can still be kind, but as soon as someone rejects us, oh, well, I'm not doing that again. We have that earthly response. The one that says that we should expect people to, to earn what we give. Now, of course, there are good people in the world. Yes, there are. Yeah, there are great people in the world who don't yet know Jesus. But those who are part of the church, those who claim Jesus as their saviour, our response to him should be that we are so closely part of his, his body, his family, his, his very essence, that the goodness of Jesus flows through us. We become almost inoffendable in the way that we live our lives. When the world lashes out at us, we turn to Scripture and see that Jesus told us that would happen. And so we keep loving in spite of that. I came across um, an exchange of letters um, in a book I was reading this week, which I thought would be helpful um, to share today. There's only two. It's a very short exchange. Um, it came from a, a magazine in America a few years ago, and um, it was on the subject of ministers and preaching and the church. And the first one says this, Dear Sir, it seems ministers feel their sermons are very important and spend a great deal of time preparing them. I've been attending church quite regularly for 30 years, and I've probably heard 3,000 of them. To my consternation, I discovered I cannot remember a single sermon. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. <laughs> a few weeks later, the next edition of the magazine came out, and there was this response. Dear Sir, I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I've discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, 
I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. And there's a message there, isn't there, about the church. You see, if we, if we cut ourselves off, if we try and be a freelance Christian in isolation, if we don't have anything to do with the church, if we don't throw ourselves into it and be part of it and, and explore what God is calling us to do within the building that he has designed, then it's very easy for us to lose interest, for us to get bored, or for us to have challenges in life that we simply can't do on our own. The church is a, is a great place of encouragement. It lifts us in our times of trouble. It helps us in our times of need. It prays for us in our times of illness and suffering. It comforts us in our times of grief. The church is a place which is like no other place on earth that I've come across. And it's because with the church, with all these people, all of us who are sinners, who are full of faults, who make mistakes and get it wrong, sometimes spectacularly on a fairly regular basis, dwelling with us is the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So, as a church, let's encourage each other. Let's share together. If there's someone in, in the room right now that you, you don't know, make it, you don't have to do it today, it might be embarrassing, but make the effort to get to know them. Have the conversation. Maybe invite someone round for a meal that you haven't invited round before, or do anything to, to, to tighten the fabric of our church. Because churches come under attack, churches come under threat, and churches can face so much, so much opposition. And if we're just a weakly woven material, then an attack will punch straight through and leave a hole and leave damage. But if we are a, tight, a tightly woven unit, then that attack will come and it will just be bounced back off because we can take it, because we've followed the advice of Scripture, we've come together, we've tightened those bonds, and we have formed a building that is impenetrable to attack. We are a fundamental part of God's plan of reconciliation, to bring us back to him. Being part of... The church is an opportunity to change the world. I know that sounds like a big statement. That's why I've put bit by bit. We're not going to change the world today. But look at how the world has changed. The church has done so much good in the world. The world at its worst needs the church at its best. And we're at our best when we have put the work in to building relationships that last. Relationships with each other and relationships with Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we, we are here in your presence. A body of believers, a body of sinners, Father, there'll be those amongst us who don't know you yet. And there'll be those amongst us who have known you for a lifetime. Father, we thank you that you love each and every one of us equally. We thank you that you care for us. And we thank you that you care for us so much that you have put in place this design for this thing we call church this building that we are physically part of. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into the world to become the chief cornerstone upon which our church is built. And Father, we give thanks that he is not the only stone laying on an abandoned building site, but instead... He is the cornerstone of an amazing body of believers, an amazing building in your name. We thank you, Lord, that as we've heard today, there's almost three billion people alive in the world today who profess you as their God. And Father, we pray that 
We pray that those three billion would all join together in a spirit of unity to share the goodness and the love and the grace and the kindness and the generosity and the joy and the mercy and the peace and the encouragement and the hospitality and all of these other good things that we know that you you want us to be doing. Father, if three billion people in the world did that, then surely the world would become a better place. The world would become a place of of less conflict, less anxiety, less selfishness. Father, we pray that you will help us to play our part, no matter how big or how small, in achieving that vision. Father, I thank you so, so much for the church here at Norwich Central. I thank you so, so much for the gifts that you have blessed this church with. So many people who have got so, such a, a, a variety of skills and their willingness to use them in the service of the church. Father, I pray for your blessing on this place. And I pray that you will help us to discern together your will as to how we build your kingdom here at Norwich Central. So, Father, bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Julian and the band to come up for our closing worship. Again, if you're able, please stand and we'll sing our final song.
So we celebrate what it is to be part of a church. And anybody here who isn't part of a church, anybody who's watching online who, who isn't part of a church, then I just want to encourage you. It's not a judgment. It's not, it's not an instruction from me. It's just an encouragement to study Scripture and to come to see that the church, for all its faults, is the model that God gave us to be reconciled to him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are present with us through your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that as we go out into the world now, we can take with us the, all the virtues of Scripture, all the lessons of Jesus, and that we can go out proud of our Saviour, with his name on our lips, his spirit in our hearts, and his mission to seek and save the lost at the forefront of our minds. So bless us, equip us, embolden us, and send us, we pray, in his name. Amen. 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 Please do stay for tea and coffee, and um, hope to see you again next week.